Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are in week three of a message series on walking in forgiveness. When we finish this message series, the end of this month, we're gonna start in June um, studying the book of Genesis, and that's gonna take us through most of the summer. And then in the fall, we'll study 2 Corinthians. So that's kind of our plan where we're going for this year. This comes off of the heels of finishing the book of Mark and then doing a short week on studying the life of John Mark. But I felt like this was a very important season for us to study this concept of forgiveness because it's a biblical command. And in the first week we covered this in Colossians 3.13, we're told, we're commanded that we're supposed to forgive as the Lord forgave us. Okay, so that verse, coupled with lots of other verses exactly like it, give us a a, a reference for what forgiveness looks like. It it tells us we're commanded to walk in forgiveness, and it also gives us a blueprint for how we're supposed to do it, which is helpful. We're supposed to forgive, we have to do it, but we do it as Jesus. So as Jesus forgave you, that's how you're supposed to forgive others. That's the blueprint for it. So if you ever have a question on, have I forgiven this person enough times? Go look at the cross. Uh, My patience is exhausted with this person. Can I finally now write them off? Go to the cross. There is the answer to your questions. As Christ forgave you, forgive others. And we, uh, last week, we kind of jumped on uh, the, the tail end of that because we wrestled with this idea of not just forgiveness, but the concept of reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5.18, we see that Paul tells us that because of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and because of the rec- reconciliation that he did through the cross, and as we forgive like Christ, we also now have the ministry of reconciliation. So we're not Christians who just experience forgiveness and, oh man, it's good that my accounts with God have been settled and I have, he no longer has wrath towards me. That's all good news. But he, you know, he didn't just settle my account. He reconciled me back to himself. That's also good news, but it doesn't stop there because what he did to me, I am now responsible for doing towards others. That's where we've been so far. So far. So forgiveness leads to reconciliation and reconciliation is our main goal. So what do I wanna wrestle with today? I want to wrestle with this main question. And maybe you've kind of asked this question, maybe you haven't, but I think that this is an important question for us to settle. And it would be, okay, forgiveness and reconciliation, I see it in the word of God, but, and I see that reconciliation is our goal, but why is reconciliation our goal? Why is reconciliation and, this, and forgiveness, why is it so important? Because frankly, and I don't think I'd get any arguments on that, it's one of the hardest things that you'll ever do. Forgiving someone is one of the hardest things you will ever do because when an offense comes your way, you don't just wrestle with it in that moment, it actually shapes your character and your decisions moving forward. Many of you in this place today do things on your daily basis and talk to people the way you do because of how your father talked to you when you were 10. Because of something that somebody said to you on the swing set in elementary school. Because of, and that seems so petty, but let's drill down to it. Like, honestly, many of us 
our character and what we think, what we, when we look into the mirror, the person we see um, reflecting back to us is not an actual reflection of what we see in the mirror. It's the person that we were told we were when we were in seventh grade. I, I have a working theory that nobody ever really grows out of middle school. That we grow up and we get hair in weird places and some of us grow taller, some of us completely stop growing and we don't grow at all past middle school, but we change in different ways. But I'm convinced that mentally all of us are just middle school students. We don't, we don't really ever grow past that. And, and the reason why is because so much of what we think about our worth and who we are was formed in those specific years. And, we, and it's very, very difficult for us to grow past that. All of that would bring us back to this point, okay, if forgiveness is really difficult and reconciliation is really hard, then why even put in the work? Yes, we see from the word of God that we're commanded to do it. We, why do I forgive? Why do I walk in reconciliation? Why am I a minister of reconciliation? Because the Bible told me to. Okay, well, that's one reason to live your life and do things because you're commanded to. But is there another motivation? Is there another reason why we should obey the commandment? Is there something greater behind, I'm doing this because I was told to forgive you? I'm coming to a brother who's offended me and I'm saying, I forgive you because Jesus told me I had to. You familiar, if you have a sibling, you know exactly what this looks like. I don't care about really reconciling. I'm here because dad told me I had to be here. Is there another motivation biblically that we can go to? Well, I'm excited about this because I'm gonna show you a greater motivation for forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's not just a greater motivation, it should be the motivation for all of us. So when we talk moving forward about forgiving and reconciling, there's a reason why we do it. We're gonna cover that. But in addition to that, we're gonna go even further on our understanding of seeking forgiveness. So the first two weeks, we really kind of uh, zeroed in on this idea of what do I do when I have to forgive other people? What do I do when other people have offended me and I need to go and forgive them? But what we haven't covered so far is what we do when you are the problem. What do you do biblically when you are the one who has to ask for forgiveness because you are the offender? So that's what we're gonna cover today. And the two are very closely connected. We're gonna cover this idea of what is the main motivation for us forgiving and reconciling and number two, how does that work? What does that look like if I'm the one who needs to ask for forgiveness? So we're gonna to start today in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter three, and we're gonna read just verse 18. Peter tells us something very interesting about what the cross did in our life. So let's read that, 1 Peter three eighteen. Now, I am traditionally not a fan of just reading one verse out of context. Um, so uh, while I am only reading one verse, the only reason why I'm doing that is for time's sake. We are going to read other verses uh, within context, but this is kind of gonna be our setup for where we're going today. So I'm kind of breaking my own rules here, but it's just trying to be respectful of our time. So 1 Peter 3.18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's important. 
Because that word unrighteous is used in other places too. It's used in the book of Hebrews. And that word, that translation of unrighteous uh, means people who would like trade the truth of God for a lie. That's what that unrighteous means. Unrighteous means um, it's this concept of replacing God in our lives with things that were made with the hands of man, idolatry. So Christ suffered once for sins. What sins? The sins of doing things like replacing God in our lives with stuff made with the hands of humans. He died for, for those people who like to replace the truth with a lie and call it truth. Those are the people he died for. So the righteous died for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what Peter is talking about here is the work of Jesus on the cross. And what he's saying is, with what Jesus did on the cross, his sacrifice, his, his death, his shedding of innocent blood, what it did for you was it gave you forgiveness of your sins so they could be washed away as far as the east is from the west. And not only did that, but it also removed the wrath of God against you. It satisfied God's wrath that was coming your way because of the sin in your life. It satisfied that and it is no more coming your way because Christ took that on. It also spared you from hell. It gave you a different eternity. It meant that you no longer have to suffer for all eternity in a place that Jesus describes as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It means that your eternal state is with the Lord. That's good news. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And as we studied the first week, that that understanding what he did while he was on the cross in forgiveness also gave us a blueprint for how we're supposed to forgive today. So, man, the, the cross has done a lot for us. It reconciled us back into the family of God. It means it's our adoption. It means our shame has been washed away. It means we no longer have to live with guilt. It means that we understand how we're supposed to forgive people. But even though all these things are beautiful and they're all true, they aren't why Jesus died and forgave you. They are all independently true and accurate in the sense that they did happen, but it's not why Jesus did it. Why did Jesus forgive you? Why did he reconcile you back to God? Peter tells us that he did that. He suffered so he could bring us back to God. That's why he did it. And that's huge. That is a can of worms that you will spend opening for the rest of your life. Why is that so profound? It's profound because it gives you a motivation for why Christ was willing to suffer one of the most humiliating deaths known to man. Because it meant that he would bring you back to God. That's why. Now, we aren't forgiven for forgiven's sake. If we read this, Peter is telling us that we're reconciled and we get a clean slate because it means we are restored. Restored into what? Restored into fellowship and community and friendship and relationship with God. That's why Christ suffered. That's why he forgave. 
so that you could be re-entered into this relationship, this community. Mankind and you individually could be reconciled, but beyond just having your account settled in the sense of reconciliation, become the friend of God, like we're told in John 15, 14. So Jesus suffered so we could be in relationship with God. That's why he did it. Jesus forgave us so we could be friends with God. So what the cross teaches us, according to Peter, is that from God's perspective, the most valuable thing in the entire world is relationships. Now, it may not be the most valuable thing to you. People, relationships, may not be the most valuable thing to you, but according to the word of God, Christ was willing to shed his own blood, be mocked and beaten, so that we could have a relationship so we could get God. So from his perspective, if he's setting the value above all other things in the universe, the most prized, valuable thing is people, relationships. That's what's most valuable. So if that's not where you are, if that's not your current value system, if that's not what you treasure most, your relationship with God, and therefore the relationship that you get in the community with the family, that your value system is what's broken and needs to change. You're not gonna make any headway trying to convince God that his value system is broken. You're the one who's gonna have to give a little and transform and change. So if you're valuing things beyond people, if you value processes, if you value results over people, then you're not following the value system that Christ showed us and that Peter is telling us about. The the greatest treasure in the world. Jesus, Jesus forgave us so we could get the Father. And if we follow Jesus' example of what forgiveness looks like, and if we forgive as he forgive, then we should treasure each other above what we get from each other. That's, what he's, that's, that's where he's going with this. What do we get from God? Well, we get salvation. But according to him, that's not the most valuable thing in the relationship. What do we get when we come to God? We get God. What do you get when you come to Christ? You get Christ. He's the most treasured above all. he's, He's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure that's buried in a field that you sell everything just to get so that you get that property and you dig it up and you get him. He's the most treasured. That's what we learn at the foot of the cross, that we are more valuable than all the gold in the world. And if that's what we learn at the cross, then that's how we also treat relationships with each other. We are more valuable than gold. So our value system is broken. Our greatest treasure is not in this world, it's in each other. This is what we had in Eden, and we messed it up. And we lost it. What we had in Eden was was 24-hour access to walking with God, and then a husband and his wife, they fully knew each other without any shame or embarrassment. That's what we had in Eden. And sin came in and broke what? It broke fellowship. 
It broke relationship. That's what sin did. And ever since then, God has been working his plan out through Christ to redeem that in eternity. We're going to get Eden back. And what eternity looks like is connection and relationship with fellowship with God Almighty and each other. And if that doesn't sound appetizing, you're in the wrong religion. You're going to have to go find something else because that's it. That's the sum of everything we believe. That's the big prize at the end of the road. That's our payoff. Eternal joy with him and each other for all time in a new heaven and a new earth. It is what should be most valued and beautiful to us. Let me explain what this parable looks like um, in a different terms that, that's something you might understand. So um, I'm married, I have a great relationship with my wife, but I often put my foot in my mouth and say pompous, arrogant, rude things. Sometimes I mean them, sometimes I don't, but I am guilty, just like any man walking the earth, to think that my own stuff does not stink and I am, I, I say things that, ah, I wish I had not said them. And often when I say these things, what happens is I suffer a break in my relationship with my wife. Because what I do through some of my speech and my actions is I put myself before her rather than what the Bible tells me to do, which is put her before myself. I act selfish, I say things that are rude. And what it does is it breaks relationship with her and it creates this environment in my home that is cold and silent and absent of joy. That's what happens when I act like a jerk and step out of line and try and flex my muscle to the one who Christ has given me to protect. You guys have never done this before, so you're gonna have to just trust me that this is something that happens. So in that, I, I, I have a responsibility. I gotta fix it. I have to go to my wife and I have to repent. Guys, follow me here. You have a heavy responsibility on your shoulders as the head of your home to go to your wife when you can tell that things in your home are broken relationship-wise. It is not on your wife to come to you and fix that reconciliation. She absolutely can, but according to the Bible, when you two stand before God, it is your responsibility. You are the one who's held accountable in the eyes of God for doing that, not her. It's the same like if you were to go get a prescription filled at Walgreens, for example, and the tech messed up the prescription and you suffered for it and had to sue Walgreens, who's going to lose their job? The tech or the pharmacist? Who's responsible for that tech? The pharmacist. But the, but the pharmacist never touched it. It doesn't matter. There's a chain of command when it comes to accountability, and that's what, what uh, responsibility looks like within the home. So on my shoulders is the responsibility to constantly take the temperature of my home, and if something is out of whack or wrong, it's on me in the eyes of God to initiate conversations to start bringing about reconciliation because I'm a minister of reconciliation. That's on me. That's on us. You follow? Amen. Some of you are like, I don't like that. That's okay. Your issue is with the Bible, not me. So I go to her, but the question is, why do I want to seek forgiveness? I have a I have responsibility to go to her and to, to reconcile, but why am I doing it? Am I, am I going to her so I can live without guilt? 
so I can finally have my guilt released so I don't feel so bad about what I did? Do I go to her so I can have a clear conscience? Do I go to her and ask forgiveness so that I can sleep well at night? Well, all of those things are going to happen if I go to her and ask forgiveness, but they are not why I go to her and ask her forgiveness. Are you following? If I go to her and ask for forgiveness, our relationship is gonna be restored because she's gonna forgive me and we're gonna be reconciled and there's gonna be joy in the home again and I'm not gonna have that guilt and I'm gonna be able to sleep without feeling like there's something over my head and I did something wrong that I need to fix. All of that is gonna be gone, but it's not why I go. Why do I go and ask forgiveness? Because when I do, I get her. She is more valuable than me having the uh, feeling of, ha- of being able to live without guilt. I mean, this is relationship dynamics, so this is a little hard to wrap your head around, but the motivation for why I go to my wife, why we go to our spouses, why we go to other believers and seek reconciliation is not so that you can live without guilt or so that you can get this monkey off your back and feel like I've done something wrong. All those things happen in the process of forgiveness, but the reason why we do it is because we get each other back. I do it because above all things, I treasure my wife and I want her. I certainly don't want that feeling of guilt, but that's not why I do it. I do it because I get her. I want her fellowship and her relationship, and her conversations back. I I want her. So forgiveness, it leads to reconciliation, and that makes relationships possible. So relationships are the most valuable thing that we have. Let's take that truth that we just learned and apply it to what happens when you are the offender. What does it look like? How do you walk out forgiveness when you were the one who did something wrong? And let's use the principle that we just learned about the motivation behind why we wanna seek forgiveness. So you're the one with the issue, you need to ask forgiveness, and the motivation you have for why you wanna do it is because you want reconciliation with that person. You don't want what they have, you don't want, the, you don't want what they can give you, you're not trying to manipulate the situation. <clears throat> excuse me, the situation, what you want above all else is that person back in fellowship with you, okay? So what do you do? To kick this off, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. So there are two sides of this coin. The first side of this coin is you need forgiveness and you know it. The other side of the coin is you need forgiveness and you don't know it. Now this is fun because many of us, we, we just live perpetually on one side of the coin. Life is just easier if we just ignore things so we don't have to be accountable to them. But the Bible tells us that even things that you've done wrong that you don't know about, you have some level of accountability for them, especially when someone comes to you. So this is how we're gonna wrestle with it. We're gonna look at both sides of this coin. What does Jesus say if you need forgiveness and you know it, and what does Jesus say about needing forgiveness and you don't know it? Go to Matthew chapter five, verse 21. This is Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about anger. Verse 21 says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Oh, that seems unfair. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Man, man, like that escalated incredibly quickly. Like up until Jesus' point, it was just like, as long as you don't take someone's life, you're good. But Jesus is like, yeah, but how about all the anger inside of your heart that would motivate you to want to take someone's life? How about the way that you treat one another and calling each other a fool? or telling each other, someone that was created in the image of God, that they are worthless. So if, verse 23, so, so if, so these ideas are connected. So I'm telling you, Jesus is teaching us about the value of human life. And in verse 23, so, since you should value life so much, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay, couple of observations. First is that giving seems to be a very common um, practice expected in the life of the people of God. We are supposed to have the posture of giving. The people of God should be a very giving people. But more important than giving is being in right fellowship, which is, that's crucial. So, being a giving people is very important to the cornerstone of what it means to be a Christian. But in addition to that, even more important is this idea that being reconciled and being in right relationship trumps even the giving aspect of who we are, okay? So if you know that you need forgiveness, here are your instructions. So sitting here this morning, uh, it's almost impossible for you to start hearing a message like this and, um, and, and not start thinking about all the people that this would apply to in your life. So even now I'm talking, you're starting to picture like, oh, that person. Uh, I don't want to think about that person, but I can't stop. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay? What you're experiencing right now, that's the Holy Spirit nudging you, prompting you, pricking your heart, letting you know, hey, what you're about to hear applies to this situation. So don't ignore it, because you're going to get some battle plans on what you're supposed to do with this. Because you've been holding on this for longer than, than, than is healthy. It's time to let go. So if you know that you need forgiveness, the moment you know it, that there's an issue, you're supposed to go to the person in humility. And what you're supposed to do is not contextualize or make excuses. Your apology should not be wrapped in, well, if you just understood my point of view, your apology should be an apology. It should be wrapped in repentance. It should be wrapped in a posture of, I'm coming to you to ask for reconciliation, and I am letting you know that because of my previous decisions, I have now made a decision because of the glory of God shining its light on my heart that I'm going to walk in a different direction. That's what repentance is, changing directions and moving from one thing to another thing. I'm, turning, I'm saying no to this, and I'm saying yes to this. That's repentance. So Jesus says, if you have issue with somebody, you drop your offering, don't even give it, you go to the person and you seek reconciliation and you repent. Now the biblical expectation, according to Jesus, is that the other person will be walking as a person of faith and they will forgive you and, and, and not just bury the hatchet or settle accounts, but forgive you because that leads to reconciliation and reconciliation leads to valued relationships. The person responds according to the word of God, with a heart of, man, I, I've been broken not having you. 
And now that you've come to me, I accept your forgiveness and I want you back. I want you above all other things. And so when you go to the person, the person understands the value of relationship and the reconciliation happens and the relationship is restored. And the goal of this entire process is to teach us something. And what it teaches us is to treasure and value the things that God treasures and values. You're going to wonder like, okay, well, I understand, okay, we're supposed to forgive. And I understand the motivation before it because we're going to be reconciled like we're reconciled back unto God. But do you understand the big thing that he's teaching us here? In this process of going to somebody and getting forgiveness and extending it and asking for it, what you have done is you have shifted your value system and your structure to align with heaven and not earth. That's what this does. The process of forgiveness gives a lot of benefits and you get the person back. But the other byproduct of this is that your heart has changed and now you love what he loves. And now you act like he acts. And now you're doing the things that he does. And now you look more like Christ and less like your nasty earthly self. That's the beauty of this. That when you follow and obey, he changes you through that process. We're so worried about saying, okay, well, I, I got to change. I got to do these things. I, I got to do these things. The change that you're looking for is only going to come about through your obedience to the word of God. Because as you obey, you're going to realize he changed your heart in the process. Because before, you didn't like doing things like saying, I'm sorry. Those are the hardest words for you to utter. But now you look more like him and you have no problem. Yeah, this person did this against me. That's okay. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I let them go. I'm not, they're not on the hook anymore. You let me off the hook. What right do I have to hold them on the hook? I'm letting all of this go. And all of a sudden, what happens on the other side is you become the freest person that's ever lived on planet Earth. Because you're not shackled by unforgiveness. You're not shackled by people doing or not doing things. You're a free man or a free woman. Your life is totally changed because of walking out this obedience. The whole process is designed to help us start treasuring things beyond what we tre treasure here in this world. Now, let's go to the other one. What happens if you need forgiveness and you're not aware of it? Go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. So Matthew 18, 15, Jesus is teaching. He says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Got it. Okay, so me and the four people that I told this about. Got it. Okay. That's not what he says. You go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the hardest part right there. Because you, you need some support, right? You want to rally support for your cause. You want to make sure that you're not seeing things uh, um, murky. You, I'm, I'm, I think I'm clear on this. So let me tell four or five of my best friends and see what they think about this. This is not the instructions from the Bible. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Well, that's interesting. If he listens to you, what have you gained? You've gained him. If, you, if he listens to you, you have gained an empty conscience. You have lifted your guilt. That's not what he says. If he listens, you've gained your brother. You've valued the same thing that we value up here in heaven, people. But if he does not 
listen, take one or two others along with you. Okay, now we're supposed to include other people that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So the entire church gets to, gets in on what's going on. That's incredibly uncomfortable. Nobody likes that. And if he still refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, essentially a non-believer. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you on earth about anything they ask, okay, I'm losing you, Jesus. I don't understand where we went. I was following you when we're talking about forgiving people. One, okay, just me and him, then two or three, then the church, got it. And all of a sudden, you turned left without letting me know, and now we're talking about binding things on earth and loosing things in heaven. Uh, Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask if it will be done for them in my, uh, by my Father in heaven. For, okay, uh, for, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. What is he talking about? Are those two thoughts completely independent? I don't think so. I think he's talking like Jesus typically talks, right? Where he's right here. I got you. I'm following you. I'm fo- I got it. And then all of a sudden he's talking eternal. And he's got a different perspective. And we're like the disciples who are following him. And we're like, I don't understand what you're saying. You lost me. I got it. Okay. Seeds go into the ground. I got it. And then you lost me. It's okay to feel like that. I'm making light of this because this is how the disciples felt, and this is typically how you will continue to feel. And you will want to separate those. They're not separated typically in your Bible, but you want to pull those ideas apart. Okay, the first half clearly has to do with what I do with a brother, but then the second half, that's got something else entirely. No, I'm telling you, they are interconnected. Let me explain what I mean. If somebody has something against you, Jesus' instructions are they are to go to you. And when they approach you, With your offense, you have two choices. You can, one, spend the next four hours trying to explain how you were justified and they are wrong, or you can say, I'm so sorry, I knew or I did not know, but your friendship is the most valuable thing to me, so I repent of that thing that you say that I did. Because what is more important is your relationship, you as a person, than my pride and proving my point. Now, that is incredibly difficult, which is the reason why Jesus gave provisions, because the first one is uh, walking in the Spirit, and the second is acting like um, a buffoon and walking in the flesh. So Jesus makes provision for us walking like a buffoon because we do that so often. What happens if the person doesn't respond? Well, if you don't listen the first time, then we're supposed to take two or three people to you. And if you don't listen that time, then we bring the whole church And if you don't repent after three opportunities, Jesus tells us to treat you like a non-believer. Now, that seems incredibly harsh. Why would Jesus say that? I thought Jesus was like all about love and care. Why would he tell anybody that if they refuse to repent to treat them like a non-believer? Because Jesus suffered to bring us to God. And relationships 
and fellowship and friendship are the highest prize in God's kingdom. And if you don't reflect those values in God's kingdom, then there's a strong possibility that you're not, not actually in God's kingdom. Let me roll through that again. If you want to call yourself a Christian and be a part of this church thing, and show up every week and raise your hands and read your Bible and sing loud and lead Sunday school and have people over your home for small groups and do all of the outward things that, that any normal person would look at them and say, yes, that person's mature. I can see by this specific fruit that they are, they, they are a, a follower of Christ. But you can't walk in forgiveness. If you can't accept that you are broken and you need forgiveness, then it doesn't matter what outward things make it look like you are a Christian. Fundamentally, Jesus tells us that if you can't walk in forgiveness, we're supposed to treat you like a non-believer. That's very, that's tough. Now, the other side of that is, how does the church treat non-believers? We're instructed to treat non-believers pretty good. We're supposed to love them, have them over to our house for a meal. So we don't ostracize you, we don't cast you out, but you are robbed of the connection and the relationship and the community that is inherent in the church community because we are treating you like a non-believer. So while you are welcome to continue to come to the gathering, until you get the fundamental principle of forgiveness, you can't build on anything else because that is the fundamental foundation. So as a unified church, where does it, this, is, this is where he picks up verse 18. This is what Jesus meant in the second half of these verses that we read. The church is commanded to treat non-believers with love, but there's this certain aspect where like, if you can't digest and walk in forgiveness, then you're not really part of the community. And the reason why is because as a unified church, as the community of God, in right relationship, we are operating with tremendous authority from on high. Because of that unity that God gave us, we uh, uh, have the authority to bind and loose things in this world. We can teach the Word of God and pray for things over our city, and God will do those things over our city. We can pray for each other and lay hands on one another and pray for healing, and God will loose healing, and He'll bind up demonic spirits and things that have been going. Like, we have the authority as the unified church of God to be able to bind and loose things. We have the unity to be able to enjoy experiences together that we will, um, uh, that are kind of a shadow or a mirror of heaven, when we gather what we're, this is why this, what we're doing is so important. And this is why it was so painful for us to do it for six weeks and why it's still so painful for other churches to continue to do this. Because what we're doing here is not just, uh, th this isn't like going to a movie. This isn't just like, okay, well, we're all in the same room. Can't you just watch the, the sermon on television? No, it's not the same thing. Because what we're doing here together and gathering as the church of God is obeying the word of God and exercising the unity that we inherently have in family and treasuring the fact that you are the most important thing to us, that you are most valuable to us. It's exercised and it's practiced and it's on display every week when we gather. That's one of the core reasons why we gather. And that's why it's so dangerous for us to not gather because you start losing that. You know what I'm talking about. The moment you start putting some space in a relationship, the enemy starts creeping in and saying, uh, I think this person's got something against you. You haven't heard from them in a little while. You know what I'm talking about. The enemy uses the fact that we're not in unity together in the same place to start spreading deceit and lies among the people. It happens. It puts pressure on them. So let me back off. 
Jesus is teaching us that one of the things you get in the context of unity are these opportunities to experience the presence of God among the people of God, to taste eternity, what it will be like when all the saints are together. And if you refuse to participate in forgiveness, you hinder unity within the church that allows the world to see the glory of God through her. So why is it so essential? Why does Jesus talk about the unity within the church and what happens when we're all unified? And why does he put that right next to what we're supposed to do when somebody's out of unity? Because when you start acting out of unity and start walking in unforgiveness, what you're essentially doing is locking the door for the world to see the glory of God. You're putting, up, you're, 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 you're putting up a block, you're putting up a wall so that the thing that is most treasured in the kingdom of God, people can no longer see. All we've got is the fact that God ransomed us and brought us together into a family. That is what is most valuable in the kingdom of God. And we think what's most valuable is the music. Come to our church because we've got some amazing music. We think the most valuable thing is the preaching. You should come and hear our pastor. He's so good. That's not what it's about. The most valuable, treasured thing in all of the world is you. People should come here because you're here. Because he's here among us. And if you want to choose to walk in unforgiveness, what you're doing is stopping the entire thing that he's trying to build. And I promise you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Walking in forgiveness mends relationships, but walking in unforgiveness breaks relationships. So let's conclude on this. We've learned today that there is no greater treasure than relationships with God. We have this inherited inherited treasure through forgiveness. We, We get Jesus, we get God. And because we forgive as Christ forgave us, we also get the treasure of each other. So the encouragement I want to leave you with today as we finish is... We as a church have a responsibility, a command to walk in forgiveness, but we don't do it because we're told to. We do it because our value system reflects heaven. We do it because God saw fit to to allow his own son to be killed so he could get us. And therefore, there's no price that we're willing to not pay in order to get you back in relationship with us. We will swallow our pride. We will put our selfishness in the grave. We will, we will uh, not count your trespasses against you if it means that we can be reconciled and back in relationship because that is the most valuable thing. We don't do this because it makes us feel better or our guilt is gone. We do this because it aligns our value system with heaven and it builds relationships that preach the gospel to a dark, dark world who currently has no hope and no light to look to. What is one of our most valuable evangelistic tools? Relationships. And if you can't walk in forgiveness, then you're breaking one of the greatest tools that Jesus has in his toolbox that he enjoys using to teach the world about the beauty of the forgiveness that God offers. Amen? All right, let's close on that. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.